Let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Monday evening, where we will continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Church of Corinth, his second letter to the Corinthians. We are in chapter 7, uh, verses 8 to 13, and I'm going to read these verses and reflect with these verses. But before I do that, I thought it would be good to go back into the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be consoled. A very important beatitude that I believe lays a foundation for better understanding what Paul is talking about in these verses. So this will also have us going back into treating what our Lord intended to mean when he said, blessed. So we're going to get into that Greek makarios a little bit this evening. We've talked about it before, but uh, I thought it would behoove us to look at that again. So we are going to look at what the word blessed means so as to better understand the second beatitude. And we do that so that we might go deeper into Paul's epistle. So with that, let us jump right into these verses. If you have your Bible out, if you want to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8 to 13. For even if I saddened you by my letter, I do not regret it. And if I did regret it, I see that the letter saddened you, if only for a while. I rejoice now, not because you were saddened, but because you were saddened into repentance. For you were saddened in a godly way, so that you did not suffer loss in anything because of us. For godly sorrow produces a salutary repentance without regret, but worldly sorrow produces death. For behold, what earnestness this godly sorrow has produced for you, as well as readiness for a defense, and indignation, and fear, and yearning, and zeal, and punishment. In every way you have shown yourselves to be innocent in the matter. So then, even though I wrote to you, it was not on account of the one who did the wrong, or on the account of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your concern for us might be made plain to you in the sight of God. For this reason, we are encouraged. So in these verses, we have Paul bringing up once again his tearful letter. And he rejoices because it produced in the Corinthians, what? But a change of heart according to God's will. He then acknowledged the fruit of their repentance, their increased zeal for him, and their taking action against the community member who had offended him. So my friends, we have this language of godly sorrow. And so I thought it would be fitting to go back into that second beatitude, right? And really examine that beatitude for what it is, and then pour that into the verses we just read. So with that, what is this word blessed all about? I'm going to be drawing from the great theologian, Mary Caucus. He has a beautiful commentary on the gospel of Matthew 
uh, three volumes worth, and it is my understanding that they that he is working on a fourth volume. So, that being said, Makarios, what is this word all about? Well, Makarios is the adjective used by the Lord nine times, nine times to refer to those who live according to God's heart. And we could say, my friends, that in many ways, this word almost defies translation. Some translate it as happy, others blessed, and others fortunate. But each and every one doesn't quite, I think, get at the real Greek here. Happy is perhaps the worst of all, because this inevitably connotes a state of psychological euphoria or general well-being that, that is certainly not meant here. You have heard me say on more than one occasion here on Seeds of Truth that I would really prefer to hear the word joy as opposed to happy because joy speaks more specifically to the grace. Now, some of you might be thinking to yourself, does it really matter? Well, when you go to interpret Scripture and you want to get at what Jesus is saying, it really does. And I believe this is an illustration of that. Because to say happy in the context of Beatitudes, especially today, can miss what the Beatitudes are all about altogether. Now, what about blessed? Well, blessed implies that God looks with goodwill and approval upon our lives, right? And this certainly gets closer to it, and yet it is not the knowledge that God is pleased that makes us blessed per se, but the state of our soul itself, right? And so maybe we could say that perhaps fortunate would most approximate the intended meaning because that word fortunate shows the person in question to be in possession of a good that many desire but cannot obtain it for whatever reason. Furthermore, we should say, my friends, that this good is an objective reality that has nothing to do (laughs) with how we desire or with how we wish things to be in the worldly context, if you will. You see, my friends, the person concerned may not be ecstatic over his condition, and yet he does not cease to be fortunate, huh? And the Lord proclaims to him the meritoriousness and desirability of his state. By using this word makarios, the Lord is about to consecrate to God's service, what? Certain attitudes and states of life that the world scorns and tramples upon as useless and shameful. Because, my friends, the Lord sets out to raise up what the world has no use for. This, of course, is one of the great paradoxes of the Christian and Catholic faith. Now, let us look a bit closer at this Greek word. For the Greeks, the blessed or fortunate ones were only the gods, since they were immortal and hence free from the sadness of our mortal life which of course always ends in death, the worst of evils for most people of pagan antiquity for sure. A derived meaning at the social level is the privileged who enjoy riches, a good education, and so on, things denied the great majority of mankind. So here we are to observe closely what the Lord does against this background. My friends, he declares precisely that those persons to be blessed who least resemble the Greek gods, since they embrace their sufferings and the mortality 
and make these their road to God. You see, my friends, Christ implies that the most divine road on earth is the path of the cross since it is the way of love. He is telling us the least privileged in the eyes of the world are precisely those who have the greatest possibility of using their emptiness, of using their weakness in a way meant to induce God to communicate his own life and strength. Those who practice the Beatitudes are imitators of God, of the divine nature. The Beatitudes are no longer negative commandments that forbid sin, as the first Decalogue largely was. Brothers and sisters, the Beatitudes are the carta magna, as it were, that invites poor mortals to be like God here and now in this world. Jesus Christ wants us to see, my friends, that what you think is blessed isn't blessed at all. Jesus Christ says, you want to be like the gods? No, there's only one God. And if you want to be like the one true God, then be imitators of me. You have heard me quote the church fathers and their great insight into what we're talking about now as it relates to our participation in God. Here I'm thinking of St. Irenaeus of Lyon and St. Athanasius, who affirmed that the Word became man in order that man might become like God, might be deified in God. And of course, that Christ is among us in order to accustom man to live with God and God to live with man. The Beatitudes, my friends, are like the breathing of this divine life on earth. The life that alone makes man happy and fortunate in the same way that God is happy and fortunate, blissful in his eternity of love and sight. What does our Lord say later in the Sermon on the Mount? Remember again, the, the Beatitudes kickstart the Sermon on the Mount, right? Matthew chapter 5, verse 48. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. And here in the Beatitudes, he proposes the concrete way to attain such perfection. So, what about the Beatitudes, and in particular, the second Beatitude? How fortunate they who mourn, for they shall be consoled. You know, in this and each of the following cases, it could be said that the better translation would be because it is these and no others who shall be consoled. So what's going on here in the second beatitude, especially as it relates to our verses from St. Paul this evening? While we have a series of praises here in the beatitudes, it is clear that it is also a series of adverse judgments on those who do not share the attitudes of those declared fortunate. Likewise, the two halves of each beatitude are carefully, strategically juxtaposed, one put up against the other, so that to an active attitude in the present, which is the first half of the beatitude, right, there corresponds a reward received in the future second half of the beatitude, and of course, this reward is described by a verb in the passive voice. So there's no question that the reality of the kingdom of God is already in the possession of those whom the Lord declares as what? Blessed. The extraordinary thing here is that the Lord declares 
they are already fortunate. Interestingly, my friends, this affirmation is itself never in the future tense per se, but the full enjoyment and external manifestation of that reality remain mysteriously veiled. The saints incarnate in their lives and deeds those virtues and attitudes that manifest the divine life that properly is theirs. Brothers and sisters, the Lord's work of giving himself wholly to his saints in every way they can possess and enjoy him will then be the very content of a glorious eternity. Why have we talked about so often this call to empty ourselves? Well, so that God might fill us up with his grace, that our whole life might be invaded by God's grace. So as it relates to this particular attitude and the language here, those who mourn are those who are both afflicted interiorly, above all because of the death of someone they love, and show such keen grief exteriorly by signs. In antiquity, you would see this in the tearing of garments and, and loud lamentations, and certainly in fasting, and, and you would even see this today. I have had some folks close to me pass away recently over the past year, year and a half, and what always strikes me is on the other side of the grief is this intense fasting, this intense prayer for the soul. It's fascinating to see how we respond to death. So, reflecting further into this beatitude, in particular what Jesus Christ is doing here, it is obvious that it is not these external conventional acts as such that are being commended. What Jesus is doing is exalting the ability to feel deep, grieving emotion, and to show such grief to the world. So, Without the two elements of eternal emotion and external signs manifesting it, there would be no mourning for any culture in the ancient world. The mourner refuses to call death by any other name, right? <laughs> the mourner refuses to replace the presence of a dead beloved with anyone else's. In this sense, could we not say that he is faithful to an individual love? But in facing death squarely, he is also faithful to the profound conviction that life is sovereign over death and that somehow death ought not to be. This is precisely the divine point of view, and thus God too is what but a mourner. There is a beautiful poem titled The Night of Good Friday in which the Father praises the night of Good Friday in the tenderest terms, thanking her for having received his dead son into her maternal arms. Death attacks and attempts to destroy the permanent union toward which love naturally ends, and thereby death is sin transformed into the universal destroyer. That's the beauty of the cross. But my friends, in persevering in his non-acceptance of death as the ultimate reality, the mourner, for all his immediate helplessness, human poverty, and anguish, reveals what? But himself, as the believer who obstinately awaits the life-giving redemption he knows God's power alone can bring. 
True mourning, thus, is a profound act of faith. A profound act of faith out of the depths of what ought to be. Though it feels like despair, maybe, it has a deeper and more authentic name. And that name is the virtue of hope. Jesus praises sorrow, the virtue of continuing to love in the midst of ruinous circumstances, which is the opposite of resignation to the irretrievable loss. Brothers and sisters, hopeful mourning is a Christian virtue. Christian mourning is far from the kind of modern therapeutic mourning that simply wants to attain peace of mind by becoming reconciled to the inevitable. Here we are made to reflect upon Rachel in Matthew chapter 2, verse 18. At the time of the massacre of the holy innocents, the Christian refuses to be consoled by anything less than what? The resurrection from the dead. The resurrection from the dead. And what about consolation? The reward promised by Christ to those who mourn is in the future and not in the present. They shall be consoled. Now, what's going on here? To translate the verb simply to console is not enough. It makes the reward remain probably too vague and abstract. Literally, the verb means to be called to someone's side. To be called to someone's side. I love that. So the consolation involved here is no mere extrinsic comforting. No, just as uh, desolation means being abandoned to an absolute and terrible solitude, consolation implies that someone enters into my solitude in order to share it with me. And my friends, here is where I believe we have something so invaluable to what is going on in Paul's epistle. He doesn't want the Christians in the church of Corinth to slip into this desolation, to slip into this solitude. No, he consoles them with a tearful letter and out from his letter that is a consolation, he himself is consoled. Part of the blessed are those who mourn also includes blessed are those who grieve for man's earthly plight. Because when we grieve for man's earthly plight, what do we do? Out from such grief, we are convicted to do something about it. In the case of St. Paul, to write a letter, a tearful letter, a letter that evokes sadness, grief, the virtue of mourning. He became a consolation to others, and so in turn, he was also consoled. By what? The Corinthians' conversion, metanoia, their change of mind, their new way of thinking, right? They were convicted by a singular grace from God to be sorry for their sins, and at once to be firmly resolved to change their way of life. Huh? God, my friends, does not console us by abolishing our solitude, but by entering into it and by sharing it. St. Paul was entering into the desolation of those in Corinth. 
in so many ways a promise of this kind of consolation is the pledge of a summons to a presence that can radically transform mourning from within. And that transformation again leads to conversion and a zeal, right? A zeal, a a sense of urgency to now live in God and at the same time for God. Again, my friends, that word metanoia is a genuine acknowledgement of wrongdoing, which at once is coupled with the humble resolve to change one's behavior. So you are made to begin to look outside of yourself, that there is something greater than I, and that something greater than I is thou, and that thou, capital T, is God. And now all you desire is to live in God, and in so doing, again, live for other. Because authentic metanoia is manifested in a changed behavior. That metanoia, that new way of thinking, is essential for Christian life, is evident from our Lord's use of the verbal form of this word in his opening proclamation in the Gospel of Mark. What do we read there? Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent and believe in the gospel. Paul goes on to remark that the community was saddened in a godly way. Saddened in a godly way. So on the heels of this metanoia, on the heels of this change of mind, change of heart, new way of thinking, they were saddened in a godly way. And of course, the phrase in a godly way signifies what? But according to the will of God. Because the Corinthians were saddened in this manner, Paul assures them that they did not suffer loss in anything because of him. Even though his letter caused them distress, what did it do? Was it not the catalyst that led to this authentic repentance? The real loss would have occurred if they had rejected him, right? The one who had brought the gospel and God's gift of reconciliation to them. So Paul sets forth an important distinction that really does have us going back to the heart of the Beatitudes, the heart of that second Beatitude. On the one hand, you have the distinction between godly sorrow and worldly sorrow. On the one hand, godly sorrow, the sorrow that is according to God's will, is rooted in the recognition that our sinful thoughts, words, actions, and omissions offend God, adversely affect others, and hurt ourselves. In short, it comprehends the truth about sin. So it is, godly sorrow produces authentic repentance. That is, both an inner sorrow and the resolve to amends one life. On the other hand, worldly sorrow, literally sorrow according to the world, is grounded in what but a worldview that refuses to acknowledge the presence and power of God. Brothers and sisters, you cannot be blessed for your mourning if your mourning is without hope. Worldly sorrow is self-centered. Worldly sorrow does not lead to a change of heart or, for that matter, behavior. 
It is the regret felt, for example, when ill-gotten gains are lost, when one is prevented from engaging in sinful pursuits, or maybe when one's immoral activity is brought to light. Here, we are encouraged to reflect upon St. John Chrysostom, who once astutely observed such sorrow often leads to the thirst for revenge. Worldly sorrow produces sin. Godly sorrow produces virtue, grace. Amen? Amen. All right, with that, let us close with a word of prayer. Good and gracious God, we do just give you special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening. The gift of time that you have afforded us to reflect into the beauty of your word and how we are made to reflect into other passages that we might gain deeper insight into the actual passage we are studying. How one verse illuminates another verse, how one chapter illuminates another chapter, how one book illuminates another book, because this is the grand scheme that is the intelligible coordination of your inspired word. Amen. All glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.